DBC Pia is an Australian author of Vernon Godlittle and various other pieces. He was born in South America, then raised in Mexico, and largely spent his time in the Republic of Ireland. Pierre has been nominated for the Guardian First Book Award and received the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize and Booker Prize. I've only got a little to other novels. Well, I wanted to write other things. You know, when I first thought of Vernon, he was a trilogy. And Vernon was going to be the first one, which is a very liberal view. And then I wanted to do the opposite of you. Mm. Actually, the very conservative view, mm. where he was messed up and society was as it should be and functioning as it does. And then I wanted to do a third one where he becomes president and has to reconcile these two really different worldviews that we have. But when I said that to the publisher in the first instance, they said, don't push your luck. So no, I did something else. My agent got me a two-book deal mm. when she saw Vernon, so I was going to do something anyway. So, I mean, I know you've, you've probably discussed that a lot. I, I was interested, but then you, you, when you wrote the, the Miller's Broken English, so you, you turned track there and uh, wrote in third person. Yeah, I know that was, that was a funny one. And by this time, I was already published, which mm -hmm. is a really different space to write in. Mm -hmm. And just striking out on your own. Yeah. and doing what you feel. So I was curious, and it's, it's almost tricky to remember what was, what was going through my mind. It was right after Vernon was published in 2003, and so by the end of that year, after a, a little hiatus following the attacks on 9-11, the states of Britain had started bombing Iraq. So the year was full of um, war, suddenly, because I'd been quite interested and a little bit heartened by the fact that America hadn't immediately struck out and just destroyed everyone, but that there was a, a wait, and it seemed to me there was a possibility there that nobody need get destroyed. But then by 2003, of course, as was inevitable, we had gone to war, and not directly with the perpetrators of this attack, because by definition they were dead or they were individuals, some, but, but we started destroying whole countries in the more approximate region. So my mind was the kind of the embarrassment of being from my culture, I guess, and the embarrassment of being on the powerful side, or the apparently powerful side, of the equation. And during the course of that time when I was writing Ludmilla, I, I had a chance to visit the Russian Caucasus, where there's a hell of a lot of conflict going on, and with Médecins Saint Frontier. Mm -hmm. who had a psychiatric program 
on the borders around Armenia and Azerbaijan for this immense population of refugees from that, which was already an old war, really, but, but it was still active. They were still throwing uh, shells at each other over the mountain. Mm -hmm. And a hell of a lot of refugees that came out of that. And so they had an interesting program to try and... Um, uh, to try and deal with the migrants that, that came out of war. And it was really eye-opening, and I guess that fed into Ludmilla. So if, if we say that Ludmilla was just my embarrassment about just being this freakish, this freakish, arrogant culture that can't really be bothered to, to go and understand other places, as, as I see it, or to just go and have a cup of tea and right. and try and see things from a different perspective. If that was the reasoning, if that was the feeling behind the book, then this visit to the war zone actually provided the details because, I mean, it's complicated around the edges of war zones, but some things were really, really clear, like really unambiguous. One of them, which is never mentioned. It's not part of the, not part of our paradigm when we think of this. But one of them was that it looked like a hundred percent of men were completely useless when they're in a, in a low situation. It's like one hundred percent were drinking, wasting opportunity, and just hanging out. While a hundred percent of the women in that situation were going to the work every day of, of keeping humanity going and of washing their children and collecting firewood and scraping and cooking and doing everything that they they had to do to just keep the to keep some basic engine of, of humanity alive. And it was the case in this war zone where by the time I got there was fifteen years I guess fifteen years after the ceasefire or something like that, official although they, they were still having little fights, it, the, it was the case that there were towns, refugee towns, where, according to statistics anyway, no less than half the population were mentally retarded. Oh. And part of that came from certain, certain cultural traditions, which some people had of marrying uh, a handicapped child to another handicapped child when they're young and just setting them loose. Right. I want to go back a little bit. You were talking about the strength of the women and Ludmilla is quite, you know, quite a strong character, subverting what uh, the expectations were on her. Yeah, if you want to speak a little more on that. It was really evident. I mean, we, you know, the, we get the paradigm now from the culture and you know we can see in, in so-called developed societies <clears throat> excuse me in so-called developed societies you know we can see a certain amount of the the quest to address <clears throat> imbalances that have come about between men and women in the workplace and all, all of these things which are all around us, but it's incredibly rare. Just it made me realize how incredibly rare it is 
to absolutely take a big bunch of people, like thousands upon thousands of people, and strip them of everything and just put them on the floor with nothing and see what happens to them and then just see that actually, you know, the women exclusively were getting up and collecting any little thing that they could use and were building, were, were in the business of nurturing and trying to build a nest back, back up. And it was even mentally retarded women and even really badly affected women by this war. But every single one was concerned with something. Whereas I didn't see uh, a man engaged in any of that work, but rather, you know, they, they were trading things to buy vodka or entering into crime or... And in fact, not only that, they would abuse these women and then go mm -hmm. out and, um, and drink. And it was really shocking and in your face. And, you know, obviously the equation will have some amount of local, some amount of local DNA. So I don't propose that the, yeah, a universal standard in, in quite such a harsh way. But it was very clear that, that the women were doing the job of things. And further than that, they weren't, in the most part, they weren't sitting around complaining or philosophizing or wishing for something else, but they were actually just getting on with it. And so that very much inspired my character, Ludmilla, who starts the book with, with being abused within her own family, and but pretty much eats alive everywhere she sets out honestly, puts a, takes one step after another and sets out honestly in a certain direction, but pretty much eats alive. And by the end of the book is the centre of the the whole story and has has become the winner, the only winner in the book, actually. So you to the extent that you can call that winning. So you mentioned philosophy, and uh, throughout your novels, there's a very strong conceptual framework. And I'm wondering, do you read much philosophy, sociology, psychology? What are you reading? I read some of it. Mm. It just interests me, and I didn't get an education in it, mm. so. I have the freedom and the naivety of the autodidact who can just pick and choose to study what they feel like on a whim. But it interests me, I've just always been interested to watch people because it's clear, even from childhood, it's very clear that things are not what they seem. And that fascinated me. And I've used and abused that myself growing up. But so, it's very interesting to do so. I, you know, I've read some. I'm not a, I'm not a big, big student of anything. But I do fill in gaps where I'm interested in something, and at least get a sense of what others have thought about a certain thing. Right now, we're in a very interesting period. There's a big, big explosion of really compelling and obvious neuropsychology and a lot of experiments happening and some of our automatic brain processes which are on the one hand get taken advantage of by the market but on the other were, were developed to kind of streamline 
the way we worked and um, they're making all sorts of really interesting discoveries now so are you I writing think this will be the century of psychology are you writing about that now is that your current novel is that it? yeah i am actually yeah i am it, it, it very much uh, centers on that and, and i think it could be in a way the most true if you like the, the least symbolic book because it's very clear actually to me what you know, how things are shaping up so you're a bit on. sorry you're a bit psychic i'd like to know how things are. it seems like certain things so i how is it how are things shaping up how are things shaping up in the world yes i'm very eager to know i'm just with your novel okay. and with yeah. what's well, not to say is yeah. It's not to say that it's real, it's just my impression. And, you know, Lord knows I've been wrong before. But I was just, I, st I started writing this book. And, you know, I've even written a little bit about this in Release the Bats. Yes. It just seems to be a strange thing. As soon as you begin something, even you just make the decision, then mm. all sorts of new information seems to show up that relates directly to that decision. Mm. And so I'd started writing this book. It was, the, the premise was that it was going to be about change. And it was going to be about the, the vertical curve of change that we're on right now. Mm. So, you know, we've been making tools as creatures for 2.6 million years. And it took us a million years to develop a hand axe and another, I think, 1.4 million years to put a handle on the hand axe. And then suddenly, yeah, within 100 years, we've gone from Steam to Google to da 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 Yeah, I don't understand. In a, in a yes. Situation. Yes? No, I just don't understand the acceleration. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, uh, the acceleration is hardcore, but of course that will end. You know, it's also, it's coinciding with a time when um, there really are no ideologies around us. So, you know, most of, most of the governments with any power are just following uh, profit. So we don't really know. So we don't know and particularly care whether it's an experiment. And so I started the book out like that. And then I met a very interesting uh, neuroscientist a neuropsychologist and had some really good discussions with him and learned some some amazing things that are happening uh, discoveries in the brain and it just in the course of writing this novel anyway i came to see that the current battle we have the current battle with let's say the jihadists on the one side and and the free west so-called free west on the other but also the battle between liberals and conservatives and rich and poor, all these things are boiling down to a simple battle for a part of the brain. Mm. Oh. And really, all of these, it's not expressed as such, but the brain responds differently if you're mm. someone who thinks of others, oh, right. rather yeah. thinks just of yourself. Mm. And they actually did some very interesting experiments showing how our language and, and our ideas change the brain and change parts of it to make us one way or another. And they found that just 
for instance, they discovered that because of certain words in Chinese mm. carry a different meaning than the same words we would use for, for the same thing, that the Chinese brain is actually different and there is a much less, if, if at all, a much lesser sense of an individual mm. alone in the world, but rather ideas tend to be about everything. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it, it does make sense. And as a novelist, I'm wondering, do you have mixed feelings about that? Mixed feelings about, about whether it's good to, to develop a brain which is more individualistic or collective. Mm. Oh, I have yeah, not even mixed feelings. I actually think it's, it is clearly, it has been for two plus million years a part of our survival that we can work together mm. and that we can establish society we're a social creature and the only way that we've been able to achieve anything is by working together which means sucking some things up which means mm. not having milk in your tea if there's no milk and mm. uh, and we're becoming unable to do that now individualism really is making um, very very you know, socially useless people in a way, and it's not to say that that we can't all be empowered and and still have you know, our, our individual taste. But I think, ironically, what's happening is that the the cult of the individual is actually is making them less of an individual than they ever were. You know, and this goes because back just yeah. wearing the same tattoos and saying the same words and and following the same routines but we're less able to compromise with each other and that's that won't help us in future sure and this goes back to the consumerism that you critiqued in lights out in wonderland yeah exactly yeah well it only suits it doesn't suit individuals to be individualistic to this extent i mean it doesn't suit me for instance if i want to live in the world mm -hmm. If um, that's a question, <laughs> do you want to live in the world? <laughs> yeah, well, I do at the moment, yeah. Generally speaking, I do, yeah. Yes. Do you still go back to Ireland? I, I'm just, that's a question, you know, retreating yeah, from the world to where, Well, that's where Yellow River House is. Yes. Yeah, that's my house. It's um, lovely. I know Leitrim. I, so, I lived in Ireland for many years, so um, oh, really? I have roots oh. there. Yeah. I'm a bit mixed up like you with my accent all over the place. That's I'm, I'm perfectly at home with it. So you want to live in the world. That's good to know. But it's always, I think there's there's always that struggle. I think with the writer, the artist, it's between the solitary and the collective. So it's it's hard. You do you write, you're intensely close to people, I think. You know, you're observing them, but you're doing it on your own. So it's strange. Sorry, going back there to the consumerism, Nights Out in Wonderland. Well, that was an allegory of the, of the collapse of the markets where... Everyone just seemed to go on a final big who gives a shit party and then the thing fell down mm. uh, Which was really interesting because that the exact same thing happened 15 years earlier and yeah. it will happen in You know another Five or six years again, but we will have forgotten the previous ones. Yeah, we're so, so stupid Isn't that isn't that weird that human memory is just so ridiculously short in terms of 
being able to act on anything. Yeah, and I think, as you say, the more things were distracted with you, you were talking there about the, the fake Gucci handbags, the more trinkets we have around us, the more limited our memory becomes. We're just moving sensation to sensation. Yeah, it's true. Well, they're selling us stuff, and that's, that's what got me, and it still is kind of infecting the new novel as well. Mm -hmm. but just the notion that, that our psychology is used for marketing and there's a very interesting little experiment that some zoologists did yes. studying automatic behavior mm -hmm. and science tells us that the automatic behaviors that we develop are actually the thing that makes us progress and that without them we wouldn't be able to move forward because if we had to Every time we make a decision, if we have to think about it from scratch, whether to trust someone, whether to do this or do that, yeah. it would take all day and we wouldn't get anything done. And so we automatically have behaviors such as if we see a doctor, we trust him with our body. You know, if mm -hmm. we see a policeman, we stop and pay respect. If we see this or that type of person, our brain automatically goes, okay, it's a doctor, it's fine, this is fine, that's fine, that's fine. Those can be taken advantage of, and uh, any zoologist did an experiment with an animal, which was which was very cool, with a turkey actually, and they discovered that baby turkeys make a special noise, mm -hmm. and if they make that noise, the mother automatically just comes and and gathers up the baby turkey, and so it's a perfect system, but it's an automatic behaviour, and they started putting predators like stuffed predators with the turkey, like cats and whatever. And But if they put that recording of a baby turkey in the predator, the mother would still come and, and nurture the predator because it was just automatic. And that kind of thing is happening to us, and the market knows that and loves it. Yeah. They love that on top of our insecurities, and our vanity and our greed. They also know exactly how to make us feel obligated and to, to use the automatic behaviors that we've developed in order to streamline our life. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah. Suddenly we're finding actually we are. If, you know, unless we want to be taken advantage of, we do have to spend all day deciding if this coffee is a ripoff and if this person is for real and if this product is for real. What are your feelings and participation in social media and... Okay, I don't participate, but simply because I, I don't have a reason to. Yeah. So, I think if I'd have been a kid when I was a teenager, I would have probably loved it. I would have been out there completely just because it was you know, kind of cool. But otherwise, I don't have a, a reason to do it. It seems full of the turkey, false turkey noises. I mean, I have to, I've only joined recently. I, I held out a long time. I, well, emails. Well, I don't know, but I was forced to by these universities. But it's full of a lot of those false turkey noises. And yes. it's, it's <laughs> strange. Or, or they're like emoticons, or someone told me that, you know, in the future, I don't, I'm, I don't mean to be a doom monger, but this is a technology guy, so the novel writing, 
might be a thing of the past because in the future we'll just exchange emoticons and I don't know. <laughs> I don't mean to be a negative. I don't believe in that, but. Well, it could be true. I mean, it's you know, lots of things. That, what is going to happen, which is unfortunate, is that they will become an intelligentsia or a technocracy. Yeah. Where you you know you just have your your masses like lambs to the slaughter. Yes. You uh, like to wired by their devices, and then the people who build the devices and understand them, and you you know you're your intelligentsia who, who withhold, but they're making it difficult, for instance. Now, even joining a bank, having a bank account, really, they almost demand that you have online access and that you do it with devices, and, like cash is disappearing, basic things are, are disappearing. So also there are discounts if you do things online, and so mm -hmm. the incentive is for us to to join up the system and I guess that will continue. It will. Hi, I'm Nina Hook, a student at Pace University. My field of study is English with an emphasis on publishing. With the creative process, I'm an associate interviews producer focusing on creative writing and music. DBC Pierre's creative mindset and encapsulating writing has caught the eye of many, creating room for deep thought and evaluation. Pierre says, I think ironically, what's happening is that the cult of the individual is actually making them less of an individual than they ever were. Just wearing the same tattoos and saying the same words and following the same routines, but we're less able to compromise with each other and that won't help us in the future. This really grasps me and forces self-reflection on us all. The power of the individual, of writing, is uniqueness, freedom. Yet how can we harness that trying to follow the molds of others or society, even with intentions of promoting individuality? Through this, I was pushed to evaluate my own work as breaking the mold of myself toward my true self, which can be immensely different. As I wrote in my self-identity poem, jagged and imperfect, she was beautiful. I would gladly break my bones to break that old, hard mold. Pierre finds ways to create an eye-opening perspective to encapsulate true creativity, which to me and many others is inspiring. And well, that's, I think that novels are a refuge from that. And then also I was interested in you talking a little bit more about film, although you said that it was a dog's game making scripts into film, but I don't know if you want to discuss that a bit more because you're so strong with visuals. Yeah, I like film. I would, it, it would be great to make a film. I like watching films. I don't think it's a, a novel, or it would have to be really, really resonant cinema. I guess that's where the difference between cinema and film, you know, whereas a novel really engages your brain and, and makes you the principal character. A film is a little bit more of a, a passive experience for me, unless it's a, a great piece of cinema. But I really like it. Yeah, because you were mentioning, well, Herzog, which I don't know that that you're developing that, and also Fellini, and these, are, I think, are great filmmakers. That's, um, yeah. 
I loved Fellini because he didn't give a shit and because he would turn up to the set without a script and he would somehow get this budget and assemble these amazing actors but in certain films Eight and a Half for instance he made it up as he went along I didn't know the history of that wow it was very pure oh that's wonderful and yet this in it it's so complicated and I guess he's drawing on other works but no that's that's wonderful I didn't realize that was unscripted yeah, they started with one they, they, he was an amazing author because mm -hmm. they would wait six months there would be a delay because he wasn't ready for some reason and and then but so suddenly day one would begin and there wouldn't be a script or they would have a script and and he would completely ignore it mm -hmm. and and just throw things in and I thought that was much more like painting then mm -hmm. in, in a sense that just following a feeling with these tools, these colors. So now it it makes also a little bit more sense. If he was an early hero, I don't know what to use the word hero, but he was someone that you admired. And, and knowing yeah. a little bit of what I've heard of your early life, it seems unscripted, if I may say. Oh, that's very cool. Well, no one has said that, but, but that is probably true. It's unscripted, and yet I spent a lot of it. Um, trying to write the script you yeah. know, differently and actually you can't do that you just have to see what happens in many cases yeah I know it would be a hard one to tackle I was wondering because I know you've included memoir in, in in release the bats but it's not entirely are you uncomfortable with writing pure memoir not really not for the reason I think you mean it I'll tell you what happened with Release the Bats is that a while earlier, before I started writing that, the publisher approached me for a memoir. Mm. And I said I couldn't do it because there are some great, great stories and stuff. It will be really, it will be very readable, I guess, because it's bizarre. But too many other people were involved and I don't feel at liberty I would feel bad writing the story of someone else as well. So certain of the big, you know, the big adventures have other players in them and those people are still alive. And they, I don't know if they want these stories told or not, um, but B, it would be incredibly difficult to write the memoir without identifying those people to someone uh, from that era. And not to say that, it's all criminal activity or anything, but just one's life stories should belong to each person. And so at least while while most of the work, while a lot of them were alive, I didn't feel that I should write the mm -hmm. story. And then it's much more boring if I just write about myself and so right. put everyone else in. And is there a way that... No, I know I really respect that decision to, to respect them. And... I don't know, here I am not giving writing advice, but you write so precisely. This is what I was wondering. If if you write so precisely about your own and other people's lives, then it can feel perhaps, I don't mean to say pornographic or intrusive, say. But if it okay. was done in a more, because you're very relaxed to speak to, you know, you seem very comfortable in your skin. And if it was told in a more oral fashion, where you can skip mm -hmm. over things and respect them. I don't know if I'm really 
fleshing out that, the thought. That's true, actually. You mean just tell it as I would in a and say, listen, a bunch of we guys went up the yeah. hill one night and yeah. this happened. It's a possibility. Yeah, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, actually. Um, I, just, I guess that's the other thing. I felt a duty. If I was going to write a memoir, then it had to be quite detailed. But no, it could just be anecdotes, couldn't it? Well, I think so. I think you're, you're very interesting to listen to. There's the two elements, and and also in your fiction too, it has a strong oral element. So, I just I don't know. I I would be very keen on reading that. But like skipping over things. One author, one book that I thought of when I read some of your work, although it's uh, more compressed, is The Fall by Camus, for instance. And he skips over a lot of things like that. Yeah. But anyway, I don't. I'm not making a comparison. But I thought, oh, that would be. That would be great to hear those stories in that kind of compressed oral fashion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you know the one? It's now that you're, you're speaking about this, I'm actually thinking about it in in detail. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, when I think of a memoir, I get to one point, which is where I stop and make the decision, and it is my school life because I went I went to an amazing school in Mexico City. Oh, yes which was uh, a small, ramshackle, interesting place with lots of nationalities in it. But yeah. when I was 15 and 16, it was a school that believed in complete freedom. And if you didn't mm -hmm. want to study, then you didn't have to study. You could follow your own yeah. nose, which meant I got nothing done. Yeah, and I guess, you know, all novelists do it. You know, it, where it's, oh, some of this could be true, some of this couldn't be true, and you just guess. You know, which yeah. parts? Uh, no, that's that's fascinating, and that's a movie, and it's a memoir or a novel. Or, it's very interesting, and and I see how yeah. that's flowed into your previous work. So, oh, but I have to say, you said that maybe you weren't learning very much, but it seems like you were learning all those things that an artist needs to learn. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. Isn't that fantastic? Because I've always felt really. Uh, held back felt quite inferior for, and because I was surrounded by really high achievers as well uh, people who all went to college and and, and did stuff and and father and yeah but I, I've been stuck with figuring things out for myself right and uh, you're right it's a good place for an artist mm. and an outside place and oh, so it's so it's it's strange that I'm always curious about people when they they are comfortable writing memoirs and or the memory thing as well. Is it not being able to remember some things? No, I can remember it absolutely in detail. Wow, that's amazing. I don't because I wonder. I, I know you moved around so much and and I moved around a lot in childhood, so I lose those memories or I have them, but they're. Hmm. I, I guess some of them are gone, but the. There's there's people who've had far less eventful lives that write memoirs. I'm sure you've seen them. And sure. and I do enjoy them. You're right. I do enjoy them. And actually, the simpler ones are nice. Yeah. Uh, where not much happens, but what does happen is significant. You know? 
Yeah. And another th for writer I think of when I read your writing, it's not an influence thing, but because I really admire his writing too, is uh, Roberto Bolaño. And oh, I love Bolaño. Uh, uh, I, was, I almost was going to meet him. Really? Um, yeah, we have a, a very close friend in common who is oh. uh, Rodrigo Fresan, uh -huh. who is his, his friend uh, who lived in, in Barcelona uh -huh. uh, at the time when he died and Oh yes, it's not. It's just it's that poetry we're talking about the life lived and you know the adventures and you know what it is. But you know that yeah. crude rawness. Crude, I don't want to say crude, but you know what I mean. It's effective. Directness. Yes. Yeah, yeah um, I like that. And yeah. we're living in a time when that is is quite resonant because mm. everything is so sugar coated and so mm. polished. It's great to just see someone. Where is the next place you're going to escape to? I don't know, but I want to. Now mm -hmm. it's the time. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I was thinking even maybe Barcelona itself and go and, and sit in Bolaño's shoes. I think I'd like to be in a, outside the English-speaking culture anyway because it just pisses me off too much every day. Yeah. And then would you write a more, more polyglot work? or? I don't know. It will be interesting to see how... It, That, that was another thing, and as I'm reading your books, that I thought some of them, you know, and I read the reviews and I read how I respond to them, and I think that there were some misunderstandings of s certain books, like you're very well received, but then sometimes I think it's, because we're talking about, you know, say, a monolingual English world, and those who have moved around, and so, when I'm reading them, they chime with me because I've lived in different cultures and speak a few different languages, and these are like all my friends that have this kind of strange way of speaking. Yes. And so it's completely real, but some who are just in a monolingual world, it seems uh, bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it seems true. And here is, I can't think of another civilized country, even including the USA, I cannot think of another civilized country like the UK that that disdains other languages. I mean, if you go to Europe and there are a huge number of bi and tri and quadrilingual people, and even the state is kind of, you know, between Spanish and this and that. But England, I guess, still has it, its imperial arrogance. Mm. But they don't really believe they they believe in going overseas and all the all the natives being waiters. <laughs> wait, wait, waiters who are thinking all their private thoughts, but um... exactly, yeah, they have to speak English, and in a certain way, I guess they're kind of right. They're waiting for the world to come to them, and in a way, they're right because the world is starting to speak English as a, as a second language. But, but anyway, yeah, I, I can't think of it. You're right that mm -hmm. here would be some of the most monolinguists in the world. Mm -hmm just because of that phenomenon, because foreign languages are really irrelevant to them, mm -hmm. foreign ideas and stuff. I mean, there's a lot... Thank you, anyway. Thank you, because that's an interesting point, and nobody had ever said that. 
Oh, thanks. And I think also, I mean, I don't know if that is why you were drawn to Ireland or either. I know also there was a tax situation for artists too. So, but, but I do think that that's an English of great writers, of course, but I felt that that's one of the strengths in, in Irish writing too, is that there's a subversive use of uh, English. Yeah, I, I, I do. I've always felt that that's, you know, writers who can draw on more than one culture or more than one language. It's a real strength. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, Ireland can do it, Wales can do it, Scotland can do it. Mm -hmm. Only England is is in a, a curious little island, a self-made island. It's very true. But that was great. That that was like the Latin America of Europe because they just don't give a shit. <laughs> like you know, England, where everything, where they're really fascistic, and you know, you have to absolutely not step over the yellow line. Whereas I loved it in Ireland, mm. they would put the sign up saying "Don't cross the yellow line," but but unless you really uh, took the piss, they wouldn't. Um, they not want to say anything. Yeah, well, yeah, there are lo there are a lot of artists who you know who aren't practicing artists, but yeah, they don't take the world seriously, it's and we have to live. We have to live in the yellow line. But why are you in London now? Because you're you're writing about England, and what? Not really. No, I'm okay. writing. I'm writing about the setting actually yes. is not defined so it's simply an English speaking city but it could be here or there if anything the language is probably a little bit more American no I was actually this was supposed to be a stepping stone on my way to somewhere else I'm in the countryside I'm in North Cambridgeshire oh okay in the countryside like in a kind of bit less wilderness than Ireland but, mm. but still you know without immediate neighbours which is cool Right. Uh, but I was, it was because at a certain point I thought, okay, we'll take one step closer to civilization and then from there we'll branch out. But I just haven't done it yet. Oh, you're gathering supplies before you go into the jungle. Thank you. Exactly <laughs> right. I'm gathering supplies. And those supplies are this next novel because I also need the money. All right. That sounds really exciting. I was wondering also... I mean, despite your, your relationship with England or certain criticism of it, I mean, your work has been well received there. I don't know the other countries that have really embraced your work, but I was wondering what they told you about your writing. Does that question make sense? No, I mean, yeah, I, I found it's it's interesting sometimes the, the countries that, you know, one writer will be really adopted into another culture that, that, that you really, that really respond to your work. And I was wondering, yeah. yes. No, it's true that, it's, that has been an interest to me as well because it's, it's unpredictable. Germany. Oh. Germany really, really took to it. Okay. Uh, that's probably the strongest. Germany, Holland. Okay really took to it and France didn't the English speaking countries it's very commonwealth it's UK Australia took to it mm. and like it I think because it takes risks and they live in an extremely risk averse culture oh. incredibly although their image is kind of the opposite but actually that's very very controlled um, little place Wow. Okay. I didn't. I didn't realize that. So, and it's interesting to know. But I, you did write about Germany, but and not not just for that reason. Why do you feel? Why Germany? When
when I go to a reading in Germany, they have a very a much more intellectual audience. Right. I think there's even a word, I think, Jernschaft, huh. is a word they have for almost the duty of culture. And that it's the thing that it's like an inner drive which they have nurtured that makes you get out of bed at eight o'clock on a Sunday morning and go to a museum mm. and go to a gallery yes. instead of sitting around in your room eating and watching TV. And, and part of that brings them out to readings, which is fantastic. But I have to say, in terms of speaking with a German audience, they are, by a big margin, they are the most intellectual um, people. So I'm not sure what to make of that. I mean, they ask me questions about the book, which, which I can't usually answer. You know, I don't know why certain things go in a book. Some things I know why they do, but some things just go in. But they can make theories about all sorts of stuff in a book, which I wouldn't have thought about. And that's that's really interesting. So. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I can't say why particularly. I like them a lot as people, and so maybe we we resonate because they're um, they're sensible and they're not sucked in to the current vibes the way we are. You know, they still remember. Yeah, and they still question. Exactly, they still question. Yeah, they're very independent. They don't live on debt, and they don't. You know, they they don't just accept any old pitch, which is great. I have a lot of admiration for them. I was wondering, I know this was, I guess it was a commissioned novel, the, the Hammer novel you wrote. Yeah, so, it was. But yeah, it seems fun. I was interested because you're talking about film and Christopher Lee and those kind of Hammer figures. Yeah. Uh, and when I, and I thought about that, you're generally interested in horror. Yeah, well, it, when I was a kid, I was impressed with horror. Mm-hmm. Because also, I think it's, I have a theory that, that it's the, the strongest literature. I think horror goes really, really to the heart of, of some of our deepest fears, symbolically, much more so than any books which purport to, to be about no human darkness and stuff. I think horror just really, really goes there. Probably to the extent where it's been put aside as a kind of a you know a genre, a fun, an entertainment genre, and a cheap thrill. When in fact, you know, they we're literally talking about people sucking the blood from your neck, mm-hmm. which which I just found a shocking and fabulous way to describe a society. You go to a party in this castle, and then and by the end of the night, they're trying to suck all your blood and make you dead. I've been to parties like that. I have. Exactly. But if only they would actually bite. They just It's just metaphoric. It's true. They suck your, your spirit. You've probably been to the other kind of party, too. I don't know. I'm just That's teasing. True. It would be such a good painting, wouldn't it? Or such a good short film or something where just a really absolutely normal party and by the end of the night they're all just sucking blood. Mm. Because 
interesting because I was I thinking that Christopher Lee are those icons and I thought oh I, I see why you were attracted to horror because it's this well and I, I think of him he's printed strongly on my mind there's this combination of elegance that seems to to make the horror more potent and I, I found that in your writing oh really that's cool uh, well, you've really looked at this. That's impressive. No, I don't know. You're complimenting. You have a good, a good eye. Oh, I think you. They're all things that I, I, uh, I agree with them, and yeah. it's also nice because I would like, I would like that to be true. Oh but no, but it is true because I think no, it's it's definitely true. Yes, I mean, in my opinion, I I find that even, and we didn't talk too much about. Vernon got little, but to, to write about those things, it's this precision of imagery which I love. It's so articulate, and and that elegance offsets the situation, the violence, and that's fascinating. If you didn't, if it was just pure violence, you know, it wouldn't be potent. I think. Yeah, the world is kind of. I, I think I see the world a bit that way. Mm -hmm. It is pretty and elegant, but you know, among among the wildflowers and the fluffy creatures, the really beastly things going on. Mm. Exactly. You are saying about looking under rocks. I've taken a lot of your time, so I don't want to... It's been a real pleasure. You're a hell of a voice. I have to tell you, the, your aquarium picture, oh, the shark, is my desktop at the night. I just adore that. Oh, great. It's the most beautiful human moment I think I may have ever seen. Oh, well, thank you. It's fabulous. Of course the detective is going to pull the gunner. It's fabulous. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I'm, yes, I'm, fascinating. I'm fascinated with the animals of all kinds and the, the predators. That's just great. When I was a kid, I had a real shark face. I was also just really into sharks. Yeah. Um, for, for some, just because they're, I don't know, they're, they're elegant and beautiful and also cold and menacing. They look like a bullet to me, that's why. They actually do, don't they? And this one's a beautiful one. It's a great white shark, isn't it? Yes, thank you. A and very that's... handsome shark. And the, the, the guy hero I'm taking is like a cop or a noir character anyway. It's it? Lee Marvin, I'm sorry. I it's Lee Marvin. Of course it is Lee Marvin. Fantastic. I like Lee Marvin. Uh, it's point blank. Yeah, they, they don't make these kind of gruff guys anymore. That's what I was thinking about you sometimes, like Robert Mitchum or Lee Marvin sort of person. Yeah, Lee and Charles Bronson. Lee Marvin I prefer than Charles Bronson, although the good, the bad and the ugly, he was good in that. So yeah, that, Lee Marvin, wow, that, that is a cultural icon. Yeah. That is fucking cool. People will have forgotten completely about him. You, th you think right. so? I'm living in the well, past a little, because in France, you know, we still go to movies and in the cinema and... And it's crazy because right where I, I live, you know, it's close to the Shakespeare and Company, where it's all the cinemas here. And you have people, because Francis is, Paris is living completely in the past, who are going to cinema in the middle of the day, and, the, and it might be a Lee Marvin movie, and there are um, queues around the block. Really and, fantastic. So, I mean, that's, I know, I don't know if you have mixed feelings about France or what the... It, you're, here, the books didn't chime as well here, but... No, I don't. No, I love France, and I kind of like the fact that I mean, my editor, my French editor, came to the came to this to the bookshop the other yes. night, and she's fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's a really big spirit, and she's published each book, but with a different publisher. Every time she publishes one of my books, then she leaves right. the publisher, and okay. she publishes the next one and the next 
likes of, so they're out there. But I kind of like it. Do you know what I, I like? That they're a bit anti-translation. Like, they believe in French writing, and yes. I think that is cool. Yes. Unless it's, you know, something amazing, unless it's the Bible or something. Yeah. They have plenty of French things to read, and why read some foreign things? So it's kind of nice. I, I, I take it as a, as a nice, nice part of... Uh, Frenchness, if you like. I really, really like it. That's also a place that I could stay, I think. I've never, never lived there, but I think it would suit me. I like, I like the French as well for, yes. for uh, the way they think. Well, they're also into novels of ideas, and I think it's sometimes it's about the translation, or some languages also pair better with English. And it may be, I haven't tried to translate into French, but I think it could be a little difficult, your writing. I'm yeah, it could be. I know some places have real trouble with it. Mm -hmm. Because it's actually, I think you would get along with. Uh, I don't know. Do you know? And she's interesting. I just and as as I was reading you, and she's sort of a friend. I interviewed her. I think you would get along. She talked about also her experiences a bit with drugs, and that was interesting. But yeah, and there's and about the vision of animals she writes about. So I, I thought, oh, there's a little bit of a match there. What are your views on the future of literature and with all our current conflicts, our future on the planet? Okay, a small question. Okay, the future of literature, as in reading words, yeah. I, I think it is more needed today than ever before. And if I'm to be optimistic, I believe that literature, provided we defend it properly, will become the last and only fr completely free space where we can really express what is going on underneath. And so I expect it will survive and thrive in some form or another. It's not to say that it will remain novels or in long works, but, but we will we will continue to to speak, at least certain of us, with the bigger palette of words, the bigger language mm -hmm. words, and because we're going to have to, I think, you know, because as you say, everyone else will be talking emojis. Yeah. Some of us need to express nuances, and I think the less the less that we're able to express subtleties and nuances, the more frustrated and, and empty we might become. So it's very important. And for that, we need a big vocabulary. So so I, I expect it to be around. Fine. The future of, of humanity? Yeah. Optimistic, I think, you know, someone will stay around. This is, I really think that we're not in a state of progress anymore, but that we're at a culmination now. And within 15 to 20 short years, it will be true that, at least for all intents and purposes, machines will, will take over most things. And they're already predicting that there are already two universities dedicated to the singularity the time that comes after. What I mean is after the day when machines can design themselves better, which is approaching quickly. And if that isn't perfect, and if it isn't, the humans in charge of it are going to say that it is. So it kind of doesn't matter from our point.
point of view. We're, we're entering a very different time. Mm-hmm. In the same way that when you go to the sea, when a tsunami is there, before the wave arrives, the tide goes out, gets sucked out and out, just leaves you on the beach. And I can really feel that we're in that space now. We're just watching the tide go out. Nothing really new is happening. We're still, you know, we're still listening to music from 20, 30 years ago. That there's not a whole lot new under the sun. We're remaking the same movies over and over again. It's as if we've just run out of those basic few little gadgets that we brought, and we're just waiting for the next thing. We're waiting for something else to step in there. Yeah. It sort of does feel a bit like 2001 with the big... When I saw that, the, you know, the iPad or the iPhone, it looks like the monolith, yeah? And yes. I don't... And and I think we're close... I don't know. We're close to the apes coming out of the cave and staring at it. Of course, yes. we're... Too- <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, it's weird. And so, we're, you know, on the other hand, it, it's going to be a time that needs all the art that we can... That is one thing that is happening with technology is that more than half of it is entertainment or it's media or it's pictures or it's film. So in the end, more than half of it really is artwork of some kind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we need the uh, comfort... I think we need the thoughts embedded in the comforts of art. Yes, and we need the thoughts to to be better for sure. So, you know, interesting times. I don't know, I'm not optimistic. We're living in the in times where we have the leisure. Do you know? I've been sitting around thinking, yeah, you know, wondering in the nineteenth century pressure, if they had attention deficit disorder, if they had all of these myriad suddenly disorders that we suddenly have mm-hmm. as a culture. And I'm thinking they probably didn't, you know, because they didn't have time. They had things to do. Whereas right. We have so much leisure today. We can sit around and, and get completely self-absorbed, and it's it's an amazing. That's where art is a fantastic therapy, anyway, for life in the modern day. So I'm sure it can save some people if they can just write stories yeah. instead of stabbing someone physically. You know, because yeah. you can stab them in a book, which is fun. That's that's, that's, a, that's a lovely note. <laughs> My book stab you in the gut. Okay, so these are these like quick ones. Okay, so which one or two American books or plays would you yourself recommend to the foreign leaders? American books and plays. The play, definitely, Death of a Salesman. Okay. That is my all-time favorite. And, well, God, there's so, much, so many American books and I so grew up in the orbit of that in Mexico I grew up so much more with American influence what do you do you want something different or, or one of the what, whatever, whatever you think if it's a classic what books would you recommend but the, the thing is about to the foreign leaders is an odd thing they tack on to the end but I don't know yeah to a foreign leader do you know what I would I would recommend Duluth by Cora Vidal Okay, yes, that's an excellent choice. Okay, all right, yeah, and that's not been recommended before. Okay, who in your childhood, for example, parent or teacher, encouraged you to read books, and which one or two books do you remember most fondly? Listen, uh, my father encouraged me, and he he used to read to me every night when I was too little to read myself. And the first book was Mrs. Pennyfig, 
ocean and I don't know, I had this real, it was almost like symbolically of, of the, the dark subconscious, but I just had a real, I would shivers thinking about the ocean. And I had this one book which was from the beautiful American series, which I hope still exists, the little golden books, mm. which were basically picture books with a little story. And I'm pretty sure it was Terry the Tugboat. Oh, okay. And there's this one, like a two-page picture when you get inside there, I can still see it perfectly, and it was of, it's of like a harbor, or anyway, it's the, it's the sea, and it's green, kind of choppy sea with these different boats on it. And, and as a kid, just that, I don't know, the, the incredible, you could, I could really feel the sting of the water and feel the cold and hear these boats, it some, somehow resonated for me. So, Terry the tugboat was a big, big, a big step, because I guess the pictures also did it, but yeah, it does. No, that's beautiful how much you see into that. I don't know Terry the Tugboat, so... Oh, you should have a look. Well, oh. if he's still there, yeah. um, what a great, great book. And I mean, Terry, obviously, Terry has his adventures and, I don't know, has to go up the river. I can't even remember what Terry is up to, to be honest. But, but he's out, he's at sea and incredibly dangerous and strange. Yeah. So you saw yourself on that boat. Yeah. I got a real thing. I don't know why it was. I got a real, oh, like, don't go there thing. It was, it was spooky to look at, but oh. very exciting. Okay, and one more. Which books by writers of the other G8 countries, you know, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Russia, the UK, have been most important to you as a writer? Okay, from each of those countries? Yes, if you want, or, yeah. Or just some of them? Okay. Yeah, whatever. Canada. Canadadia. Canadadia. Important Canadian writers. See, one of the problems is that you almost never know which one's Canadian writer. I'm going to put Margaret Atwood because yeah. she's, she's tops. Okay. Um, she's great. And Russia, I want to put Kirill Medvedev. All right. Okay. Well, as, as you know, doesn't technically publish work, but it is published. Obviously, I would, before that, I would have said Dostoevsky. Okay. France, the most beautiful, beautiful, beautiful books I've ever read are of the uh, romance, like, like Flaubert, mm. like a sentimental edgy, and so just for the writing is so, so fabulous. Mm. So I can remember, I think, in, in Flaubert, People are always going, okay, try and be economic in literature, and and they're right. That's great. But I just remember, uh, instead of at one point saying, I love you, I think there's a sentence in, probably in Sentimental Education, mm. that says, all that is criticized in fiction for being exaggerated about love, you have made me feel. Mm. That's beautiful. Wow, that's... 20 words too many, but how fabulous that you took the time and the, the, the idea just unfolds on your mind. Mm. So, I don't know if you want to name for the other ones or... So, yeah, Italy, I'm going to say Casanova, although I know he oh. f fashioned himself as French, but there's the most fantastic record, apart from his, his ridiculous 
the pinnacle of civilization in terms of human manners and stuff. And you were writing about Casanova. I was supposed to be. Mm. Uh, you mean in, in Holland a year or so back? Mm. Okay, yeah, well, that was that was supposedly... Well, did I actually write about it? I don't think I actually did write about it. Maybe you were just doing research. Yeah, I was looking into it because he stayed in Amsterdam. And it mm -hmm. was, I was doing a... It was the only time I've ever um, done like a writer's residency. And they had a, this fantastic apartment in the middle of Amsterdam. In Bokanda, yes. Hey? I, anyway, that bookshop in the... Yes. Exactly, yeah. yeah, there you go, yeah, exactly, yeah. And it was, it was cool. So one of the things is... Get that I had to say that I was doing something in Amsterdam which was looking into Casanova. Oh, in fact, yeah. I, I didn't write anything. Oh, okay. I put a Dutch character into, I put a Dutch setting into Breakfast with the Porches. Yes, and that's good. I, I won't tell them you are doing research because I was one of the, someone from that book handle that has written for us. So, it's like, yeah. so, so I don't know, Germany. Germany, Thomas Mann. Mm -hmm. And again, for the, for the standard of the writing. Yes. He put you into a dream. It's so beautiful. Isn't it great? Yeah. I think Thomas Mann is superb. There are others, I mean, Gunther Grass and stuff, but... Okay. Anyway, I'm sure, I'm sure it's hard. There was Japan in the UK, and I mean, this, and it's just I was fulfilling this little question. Yeah, well, UK, I would put, just because I bumped into it as a kid, I would put Evil in the War. Mm. Anyway, I should I should let you go. I've been you've been very generous, and it's just been such a pleasure talking to you and getting oh, to know you. Talking to you, Mia. Yes. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Machowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Nina Hook. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. <laughs>